Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Mark Kenny. This week on Democracy Sausage, a special live episode recorded at the Australian National University on December 3rd. I'm talking with the respected journalist, author and intellectual provocateur, Peter Harcher, about his new quarterly essay, Red Flag, Waking Up to China's Challenge. Uh, can I begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people on whose land we meet and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging now, this uh, uh, event is uh, a public event, and thank you all for, for coming along. I'm Mark Kenny. I'm Senior Fellow at the ANU School of Politics and International Relations and Australian Studies Institute. And before that, I was uh, a political correspondent and National Affairs Editor at, uh, at Fairfax, where I was fortunate enough to work alongside Peter Harcher. Peter Harcher is one of the country's genuine public intellectuals. He's the author of several books, two quarterly essays, and his twice-weekly columns are a must for anyone who seriously follows politics in this country. Of course, it's the second of those two quarterly essays that we're here to discuss tonight, entitled Red Flag, Waking Up to China's Challenge. Peter, welcome to ANU. Thank you, Mark. And, uh, you know, former Sydney Morning Herald, all the best people are former Sydney Morning Herald. <laughs> nice to be here. And I should say welcome to Democracy Sausage. Uh, your career will now take off, of course, as a result of... Uh, I look forward to it. Now, let's start where you did in this engaging essay with the China dream, or more pointedly, Xi Jinping's rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation. What is he talking about there? What's the aim? The aim is the first theme in his presidency in the very first days was to play up what uh, the Chinese call their century of humiliation. Xi Jinping's point is that he wants to end the century of humiliation in glory. Uh, and he's promising the China dream to do just that, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And it's got some specific uh, uh, KPIs, if you like, some boxes he said he will tick. Uh, by the end of this year, he says China will be uh, a moderately prosperous nation, which is taken to mean a middle-income country. Uh, rule of thumb, 10,000 US dollars per capita. Uh, they've probably already passed it this year. No, no, uh, no sweat. Uh, then to be a fully uh, prosperous country by 2049, um, 2049 being uh, the 100th anniversary of the creation of modern China, and by the same time having recovered in his in his terms uh, Taiwan as well as Hong Kong, and to bring China, in his words, uh, closer to the centre of world affairs, which of course is reminiscent of the name uh, of China itself, the Middle Kingdom, which the characters for which can also be read as central kingdom. So he's talking really about the return of China to where it was as recently as the 1820s, which was the biggest economy uh, and uh, dominant uh, player in the world. This is where Xi Jinping wants to have his country. Uh, and unfortunately, um, he's not happy, to, not content to have all the expressions of that greatness contained within China's borders. It must be enormously comforting to the people of Taiwan and to Hong Kong to know that that is the 2049 goal, the reunification of uh, the greater China. Let's just uh, stick with scale for a moment, though. Just over two decades ago, when China joined the WTO, Vice Premier uh, Zhu Rongji told a packed Sydney hotel ballroom, this is obviously from your essay, let's all get rich together. At the time, you write, China's economy was twice that of Australia's, as it had been since about 1972 when we had... Uh, official recognition, uh, it's now, or in 2018, 10 times the size of the Australian economy. How big will it get? 
uh, you know, looking out to uh, 2030, for example, that the projections are for a significantly bigger economy again? Well, a point, you know, I don't agree. This might surprise you, Mark. I don't agree with Paul Keating on everything. Um, <laughs> but one thing I do agree with him on is, that, is, is really just a simple uh, historical observation that uh, the reason that China was the biggest economy on Earth until about 1820, until the Industrial Revolution kicked in, was that uh, people everywhere had access to the same level of technology. When the Industrial Revolution took off, it gave uh, the Europeans and their offshoots, for example, us, uh, access to a whole uh, new suite of technologies which propelled us uh, into the forefront of income ranks. Now the developing world is restoring... Uh, well, has has recovered uh, the, the the same level of access as the countries at the frontiers of income. Uh, so once again, with that done, population will be be the determinant factor in economic scale. Uh, so that means, of course, a country of one point four billion people will become once again, as it was, um, the biggest economy on the planet. Uh, not necessarily in a straight line trajectory. In fact, uh, it's much more likely that there will be interruptions and crises. The um, laws of economics haven't been totally repealed. Um, And, you know, in the words of uh, the Canadian uh, economist Ken Curtis, China's just had a couple of bad centuries. Um, I think that you say in the essay that, or you cite uh, estimates in the essay that uh, the US is predicted to be worth about $24 trillion by 2030 and China $42 trillion, 175% larger. That's if you can trust the forecasts of the Australian Treasury. Um, But but yes, it is is projected uh, to be uh, the biggest economy by some uh, miles and seeing that statistic... Uh, provokes Hugh White uh, of this uh, August university in which we sit to say once you see that comparative GDP figure, all else is detail, according to Hugh. It's not, of course, just population, though, is it? Because if it were, India would be the, you know, the, the, the second largest and not by much. That's true. That's absolutely true. You, uh, governance is vital. Look at the difference between North Korea and South. Same people, same language same history until the 1950s, um, and yet one is among the very richest countries on the planet and the other still struggles with basic subsistence. So governance and, the, and, and from governance policy are, of course, uh, a prerequisite. Um, so absolutely. So all this economic might that China is amassing, it, it, it brings other, other elements too, uh, the quest for political and strategic domination of rivals and neighbours. Political interference has become, of course, a hot-button issue here in Australia of late. One thinks of Huang Zhengmo, uh, the Sam Dastyari affair. Uh, there was even an attempt, as you uh, chronicle uh, by Politburo member Meng Zhanzhou, uh, to strong-arm the opposition in 2017 into establishing an extradition treaty with China. How close did we come to that and what would have been the effects of it? Well... As you know, it was an attempt at getting an extradition treaty with mainland China that set off the protests in Hong Kong, that continues to roil Hong Kong to this minute. Uh, so the consequences um, would have been to have put Australia within the reach of the Beijing judicial system, which, of course, is an extension of the Chinese Communist Party. It's not in any way a, an independent institution. And we got quite close. The Turnbull government had agreed... Uh, on the extradition treaty with Beijing. Labor had reservations, and it was that meeting um, with the Minister for Public Security, uh, Meng, that was the breaking point where he had asked to see the Labor leaders. He wanted to uh, make sure that this extradition treaty would get through the Australian Parliament, had the government on side and wanted the opposition. And already the opposition had made clear that it wasn't uh, very excited about the idea. But when he threatened them, uh, in the in the room, uh, Bill Shorten was then the Labor leader, together with Penny Wong and uh, Richard Miles. When he uh, threatened them by saying, "Well, I would hate to have to tell the Chinese Australian community that the Labor Party is anti-China," that sealed the deal because uh, confronted with a threat from a visiting foreign uh, minister, 
they had no option at that point and, of course, had to reject the concept. So that was the end, effectively, the end of the treaty. Uh, and that's why we don't have an extradition treaty with China today. And you can't imagine there's any appetite for it now. I mean, the circumstances and the whole atmosphere has changed. The same parties in power here and there. Um, that always seems to be a constant there. Um, but Funny about that. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, but you can't imagine the co- this coalition government uh, entertaining that kind of proposition now, uh, not in this atmosphere. No. Uh, a couple of things have happened uh China has become more repressive at home and more assertive and aggressive abroad. And Australia has um, woken up, at least started to wake up, to the uh, efforts to project Chinese power into Australia. And not just Australia, of course. I mean, look at Africa or Southeast Asia or the South Pacific. It's a pretty big project that they've got going. Uh, The Australian government uh, has come to the point where it has had to act uh, look, you know, it's like the toast that you mentioned with Jurongji back in that Sydney ballroom, because I remember it distinctly because I was there and a foreign, uh, you know, a Chinese minister standing up or vice premier standing up and saying, let's all get rich together from an outfit called the Chinese Communist Party seemed so improbable was the first thing. Uh, but second, it was so brazen and everybody, all the Australian business people in the room thought this was, oh, this was wonderful, you know, <laughs> bring it on. This is just what we want to hear. And of course, the, of course, he knew exactly what we uh, wanted to hear. And Australia would have been happy to leave it at that. Let's just get rich together. Of course, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is an authoritarian project uh, that for reasons of psychology that's in the essay, can, we can talk about if you want, but w- continuously expands to protect itself. Um, and it will continue expanding in any direction it can until and unless it meets resistance. Australia was reluctant to, uh, governments were reluctant to acknowledge this because you, uh, you risk provoking trouble and no government wants to uh, provoke or bring on an argument with it, its dominant economic partner. But the Turnbull government uh, in 2017 uh, was, was uh, forced but because of the persistence of covert Chinese attempts to get influence to come up with the foreign interference and transparency laws, which really marked uh, a threshold and at the same time or roughly the same time the ban on Huawei's participation in Australia's 5G mobile network, that marked a real hardening of Australian attitudes where the federal government was saying, even if they didn't enforce the foreign interference laws properly, it, what they, they were saying, okay, we, we recognise that we have to do something now. And we'll come back to those foreign interference laws and uh, and the effort or otherwise to to sort of police them. But just staying with that 1997 moment uh, uh, for a moment, uh, it was nonetheless an assumption, a pretty broad assumption at the time that China was emerging economically and with that there would be some political liberation as well, some political freedoms opened up. There, there was at least the hope of that. Things have even changed since Xi Jinping took over. That is, even after he took over, there was still a very fond uh, relationship between the Australian Prime Minister and and him. Uh, he was seen as someone who understood Australia a bit. He talked up his uh, his time having visited every every state in Australia and that kind of thing. And there was a sense that he was a modern leader. Perhaps he was going to uh, modernise China politically as well as, as economically. But that hasn't been the case at all, has it? Yeah, that was a fond hope uh, that the West broadly had, of course. It, I think it was a bit of a conceit, you know, our system's the best, therefore they're going to come around to it eventually. We just need to give them enough time. It was also, I think that's exactly what the assumption was, frankly. Yeah. yeah, and it was also very convenient too because it meant you didn't have to uh, acknowledge the fact that it was an authoritarian power that was doing nasty things uh, in terms of repressing its own people. So it was kind of convenient. We just get on with business and, you know, uh, there were the two Western leaders with whom Xi Jinping spent uh, most time before he became president, when he was vice uh, president of China, uh, were Joe Biden. He spent some days uh, with Biden in the US and Kevin Rudd as vice president. Uh, the visit was not announced, but he was living. He stayed in the lodge with Rudd when Rudd was prime minister, and I think they. I think he was there for four days. So this was a, an inordinate investment of time by. Um, a political leader with another country's leader. Uh, at the conclusion of those time, those visits, both Biden and Kevin Rudd said, this is a man we can do business with. And yes, as you say, Mark, uh, the impression was, this is a modernizer. This is a modern guy. Uh, he's the new generation Chinese leadership. He seems pragmatic and worldly. 
we can do business with him. I joke, I've, I've sometimes joked with Kevin Rudd, actually, I, because Xi Jinping left the lodge on a Sunday. The following, uh, I think it was the Wednesday, uh, Kevin Rudd, the, Julia Gillard struck. The coup happened and Rudd was gone. And uh, that morning, the morning after, when Australia woke up and found it had a new prime minister, Xi Jinping woke up in a, in a, uh, a hotel suite in Darwin and he turned on the TV and he also found out that Australia <laughs> had a new prime minister and the bloke he'd spent all this time cultivating was on the, on the, on history's ash heap. And he turned to, um, his ambassador, the Chinese ambassador to Canberra. Apparently he was quite irritated and said, why the hell didn't you tell me this was going to happen? <laughs> and the, the ambassador, according to my informant, who couldn't possibly have been the next bloke I'm about to name, um, Ambassador was uh, dumbstruck with fear to have the vice president turning on him like this, and and at which point the um, uh, Dennis Richardson, uh, who <laughs> was travelling with Xi Jinping on that visit, uh, interjected to save the ambassador's hide and said, oh, "Mr. Vice President, let me reassure you, nobody knew this was going to happen." <laughs> so I sometimes joke with Kevin Rudd that it was only after seeing uh, the fruits of a democratic system in that in, in Australia that Xi Jinping decided to crack down hard. <laughs> on any liberalising trends in China. So, who knows? Yeah, he's thinking, bugger this democracy business. It's far, far too unstable. Exactly right. Now, there's, some, there's a really interesting kind of uh, synergy or, or symmetry, is probably a better word, in your essay in the two Garnos that end up uh, sort of advising Australian governments. Uh, that is Ross Garno, uh, who advises Bob Hawke, uh, the Hawke government, about um, China, among other things, uh, an economist from this university. And then later on, John Garno, uh, the, a former colleague of ours indeed, China correspondent for the Fairfax Papers, as they were then. Um, and he writes a, a, a more ominous assessment of China as it, as it is now emerging. Um, can you just speak to, to both of their contributions and then we'll come after that to, uh, to some of the ramifications, particularly for John? Yes. Well, it's remarkable, uh, how history works in some of the, the flukes and details, isn't it? Um, so Ross Garno was commissioned by Bob Hawke to write a report which ended up being called the Northeast Asian Ascendancy, which was uh, presented as a way of describing the economic opportunity for Australia with the economic development of Northeast Asia. It was really, though, designed as a sort of a, a coaching guide for uh, the Australian public and political system to encourage Australia to keep uh, on the economic reform path that the Hawke-Keating government had already begun on. It was really saying, keep reforming the system, keep gearing to open the economy, keep gearing to be globally competitive because there's this huge opportunity coming. Um, his son then um, is commissioned by another prime minister at another time with another purpose. John Garno, after that time, as I said at the outset, all the best people are former Sydney Morning Herald. After finishing at the Sydney Morning Herald, John signed up with uh, Malcolm Turnbull to write this report, uh, a, co a classified report into Chinese intrusions into the Australian system. And on the basis of that, uh, that went to the, the, the National Security Committee of the Cabinet and was the starting point for what became the foreign interference uh, and foreign transparency uh, laws. And it's just an interesting, um, it's a quirk of fate, but it's also telling us something about the way uh, that which which one has changed? Has Australia changed so much? A, a father and son so much different? Ross and John, uh, both uh, you know, it's it's remarkable that they're both from the same family, father and son. Or is it that China has changed and Australia's response needs to change? Each of them was responding to the demands of the, the Prime Minister of the day. Uh, you know, Ross to write the economic response to the China opportunity. John to write uh, the security response to China's new aggression and assertion assertiveness. Uh, and I would submit to you that it's not because Ross and John are worlds apart or that Australia has changed that dramatically. It's that, as John Howard pointed out just um, a couple of months ago, uh, the China that we are dealing with today is not the China uh, of 10 years ago. Yes, and uh, John Garno, uh, so subsequently as a result of uh, the, the writing of that and, um, and uh, some of the activities he's undertaken in, in promoting those arguments uh, and speaking publicly about them, he and his wife were subject to, as you chronicle in the in the essay, some pretty heavy-handed intimidatory uh, activity 
in Melbourne, uh, here in Australia. And that, that's quite significant, isn't it? And you make that point in the essay that what, what occurs happens in Australia effectively under the nose of our authorities. Yeah, it was, it was quite a moment. Um, and I'll just say two things about it. First, for people who haven't, it was in the, the Good Weekend ran an extract which started with this anecdote. I'll just briefly summarize it for you. And then I'll tell you, uh, why I think it was its particular poignancy. Um, so John having, written this classified report for the Turnbull government, which the government uh, then acted upon with the full support of the Labor Party in enacting those laws in the parliament. John then left government service and started uh, a new life as a consultant. Six weeks after those laws took effect, uh, uh, John and his wife Tara Wilkinson found themselves subject not just to one incident that I'm about to tell you about, but a, a protracted series of harassment, uh, their home, um, family being subjected to uh, harassment. And there was one day where John and Tara decided spontaneously to have lunch at a restaurant in an outdoor place in Federation Square called the Chocolate Buddha, um, where they discovered they couldn't enjoy themselves because there were four four goons who uh, were hovering, staring at them, sitting down next to them at the same table uh, until the waiter asked one of the guys to move. Uh, and wouldn't leave them alone until eventually Tara pulled out her phone and started to take photos of them, at which point they disappeared. Um, and that wasn't an isolated event. As I say, it was part of a series. Based on that, John and Tara decided that they needed to go to the authorities because they were being troubled by other things that were happening to them in, in their home with their children um, and did. And the federal authorities, even though John uh, knew them and had worked with them, were no uh, real help. Um, and in the end, Victoria police took up an investigation in, in, and are investigating as, it as criminal stalking. A quick postscript is that uh, when they were three Victorian uh, police officers uh, um, agreed to meet them in a cafe in Little Burke Street in August this year, uh, where John and Tara were relating uh, some of the incidents of this harassment to these three plain-clothed officers, uh, when one of the officers suddenly leaned over, interrupted Tara and said, are you aware that the people at the next table are filming us? <laughs> it was the same uh, group uh, who didn't realise that they were filming the police uh, and therefore giving the police a first-hand glimpse of the, the evidence that they were, that exactly the evidence they needed. Now, the poignancy of this is that this is some of the pressure tactics that the China, some in the Chinese-Australian community have been suffering for years. Uh, and it's difficult, it's really difficult uh, for that community because... They're, they're subject uh, to extraordinary uh, pressure and considerations. Many of them have family back in China. It's harder for them to resist and respond and react and take complaints to the police. And so it was a moment where uh, it, it, I thought it was really interesting and helpful that it showed uh, a complete – it was really a kind of a – you know, the laws had just taken taken effect. It was kind of a thumb in the nose to the to the federal government to say, you know, we'd, we're not frightened of your pathetic attempts – uh, your foreign interference laws, here we are. But really, its real power is to illustrate, to bring into public light the sort of, some of the harassment that some of the Chinese-Australian community has been suffering for years. Now, I want to go to a couple of uh, key statements which you use in the essay to illuminate China's trajectory. Um, one of them goes back to 1956, and it's a statement by Mao Zedong. Uh, he gave an instruction in '56, which went, use the past to serve the present, make the foreign serve China. And the second one is uh, one that wasn't intended to be made public. This is Xi Jinping's infamous document number nine, which set out seven taboos for an emergent China, um, which really, I guess, was um, an, a sort of a bulwark or an attempt to insulate Chinese um, business people, officials, uh, anyone dealing with uh, with the world as China struck out economically and politically into the world he was saying don't succumb to these uh, these bourgeois concepts like democracy and uh, um, a separate uh, you know separation of powers these sorts of things H- how do you see these the the, the, the sort of con- continuum between these two statements using the, the the past as your guide to the future and and what xi jinping was saying well uh, xi jinping is making good use of the past not only invoking the century of humiliation to as, as many assertive right-wing leaders around the world are doing, to assert a sort of a, a, an angry, grudge-based uh, uh, present. 
whether it's um, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, Donald Trump making America great again, or uh, Xi Jinping. They're all talking about they're all nursing a grudge and promising a better future. So that's a familiar political um, rhythm. Xi Jinping is not only using that; he's also using Mao. He's revived Mao uh, and Mao worship in China. In fact, he's banned criticism of the party's uh, history and Mao in particular. It was it was starting to become acceptable to criticize the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, which of course were disastrous. Uh, but Xi Jinping for China, but Xi Jinping has now banned that. He calls it historical nihilism, and that's one of the seven taboos. And it's really the the the, the seven taboos, document number nine, which, as you say, weren't supposed to be uh, published uh, public uh, publicly promulgated, and yet uh, yet became public. Um, well, Kevin Rudd summarized it last week when he said, China is the enemy of liberal democracy. I think it sums it up pretty well. So given that, given the, that assessment, and uh, it's, it's uh, on the basis of those taboos, it's pretty hard to uh, conclude anything else, quite frankly. I mean, you really would have to uh, be adventurous to come up with a different interpretation when you look at those. They're very specific. So how does Australia then proceed? Um, it's not easy. Yet. Prime Minister, easy. Prime Minister Morrison, uh, I think, uh, recently said that um, Australia could, uh, could deal with China we didn't have to pretend that we were going to become a totalitarian state and they didn't have to pretend that they were going to become a democracy. There was an acceptance of the difference and we could just proceed on that basis. Uh, I guess that makes sense as far as it goes. It doesn't really go all that far, I guess. Well, Morrison has uh, taken a slightly cooler uh, approach. You know, we've been conditioned, and it's pretty clever conditioning if you can pull it off, uh, if you can get a foreign government to a foreign country to react like this. But as you know, we go for a year without a top-level meeting between Australia and China, and we, we send ourselves, media mayor culpa here, uh, into a panic. Oh, China's angry with us. China's put us in the freezer. Oh, isn't this a terrible thing? Whereas, in fact, this is, um, uh, this is, this is I mean, as one of the expressions I use is, it's like the lion dance. It's all dance, no lion. Two-way trade between Australia and China last year grew by 17.5% while we're supposedly in the middle of the freezer and everything's terrible and we should be having a crisis. Um, but we have talked ourselves into that sort of a state. Scott Morrison stepped back from that and he said um, at his Lowy Institute speech um, a couple of months ago, he said, I'm not waiting by the phone. He said, I'd like to get an invite, but I'm not waiting by the phone. You know, I, I understand. I would, let's just cool this thing. But you're right, Mark, it doesn't really take you the next step, which is where do we go uh, from here? Because, well, actually, John Kerrin, who's here uh, this evening, said on, just on the way in uh, that Canberra is divided uh, between the economic uh, community, which wants full-scale-ahead engagement with China at any, at any cost or at almost any cost, and the security establishment, which wants to defend Australia uh, from China at almost any cost. How do you reconcile the two? We're, we're often told you have to find a balance, which implies that we're prepared to trade off some of our liberties. I submit to you that uh, Australians aren't really interested in trading off liberties and leaving our kids with fewer liberties than we've enjoyed. Uh, we enjoy our freedom of speech. We enjoy our freedom of worship. We enjoy our freedom of association. We enjoy all the taboos that Xi Jinping has explicitly said must be banned from uh, from China. Uh, and the... Um, agencies such as the United Front Work Department, which remarkably gets almost no treatment coverage or publicity in Australia, and I'll just mention it very briefly, but it is a, an instrument of the Chinese state, the United Front Work Department, uh, which was actually originally set up, it's one of the original departments of the Chinese Communist Party that Mao set up in the 1920s. It's specifically uh, designed to covertly spread the uh, influence and serve the interests of the Chinese state or the Chinese Communist Party uh, through Chinese diaspora communities living around the world. Now, it's covert, but it's not uh, a secret institution. In fact, Xi Jinping, the president of China himself, publicly has called it one of China's three magic weapons. So if the president reckons it's a magic weapon, uh, and we know it's working at work organising in Australia, we should probably pay a little bit of attention. And it started to get some attention and some traction now. Uh, the foreign interference laws are in part designed to try to uh, manage the hundreds of uh, associations and groups 
around Australia that are organised and coordinated by the uh, United Front Work Department. There's but, some 700, I think, in Sydney alone. I'm well, according to uh, Professor Fang Chong Yi from the University of Technology, Sydney, he's counted more than 300 in Sydney alone, and he says hundreds more across the rest of the country that he says, and he's put a lot of time into this um, because he's he's been the subject of some of their efforts um, as well. So it is a it is a big uh, a big organised uh, effort that occurs in many countries, including here. Now, just this is a long winded answer. And I'll, I'll I'll cut I'll cut to the to my final point here, Mark. Which is, um, so where do we go from here? I don't think this balance concept uh, carries water. We're not prepared to surrender any liberties, and but nor is any government going to stand up and say we want you to surrender your living standards. So, the formula that I uh, suggest is a very simple one. Forget balancing. Forget trying to you know do grand policy with other countries. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That may eventuate. But for the here and now, uh, we, must, we must have an economic engagement with China and we must have a positive relationship with the region's great power on all the other stuff, whether it's transnational crime or climate change. But in order to be able to engage confidently, we need to be confident that we're not surrendering our sovereignty in the process. So my simple formula is we need to toughen our internal protections, make sure our democracy is protected and our social and economic institutions are protected. Having that confidence, then we can engage energetically with China and get on with all the good stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting concept, and I've heard you say that in one of the radio interviews you were doing, that uh, if we get all of those things right, if we are very s- strong and secure and determined about uh, protecting the integrity of our political systems, our legal systems, our security systems, then we can confidently engage in the areas that we want to engage with China on, uh, the commercial areas. What about the argument, however, that we are highly dependent economically, that that becomes, and that would become, particularly in that scenario, would still become an area of vulnerability, the idea that uh, that China could... I mean, we had an incident a little while ago, a couple of years ago, when uh, steel was not being offloaded from ships in certain ports and so forth. That was a minor thing. Coal, Coal, was it? Yeah. Um, And um, so we... You know that was, and that was even getting an explanation of it at the time was 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 quite difficult. Uh, but that is a vulnerability, is it not, with the Australian economy? And you've suggested ways we could address that as well. It, it, it absolutely is a vulnerability, uh, especially with a country, China, that uses economic coercion as a settled uh, policy of its statecraft. In fact, in the essay, I run briefly through eleven case studies, eleven different countries where they've used. Uh, economic coercion. Sometimes it's worked, sometimes it hasn't. And reforms that I think we need to make are just no regrets, improvements to our own system that we should be doing anyway. This just gives it more urgency. So for example, uh, whenever you tell Australians that MPs and senators aren't subject to any security clearance, people are shocked because they know that any IT contractor going into a government building has to get a security clearance, but a member of parliament doesn't. So a Gladys Liu case, for example, uh, the new Liberal member for Chisholm, uh, you wouldn't, there wouldn't be this suspicion. And is she, is she not, you know, is she an agent of influence or not? People could have confidence that their MPs and senators were, in fact, uh, a f- fair dinkum. And, of course, we had that story emerge quite, quite recently in respect of that very seat, that there was That's an right. attempt to install a tame... Uh, an agent of China, effectively, in the Australian Parliament in the seat of Chisholm. That's, that's the story that uh, my colleague, uh, Nick McKenzie... I'm sure one day he'll graduate to being a former Sydney Morning Herald because uh, he's that good. Uh, and his colleagues in Melbourne broke that story last week uh, that a Melbourne car dealer, Bo Zhao, was approached uh, by a Chinese spy uh, operating out of Melbourne with a million-dollar offer. He was having business difficulties. We'll give you a million dollars to help you with your liquidity troubles, but in return you're going to run as the Liberal candidate for Chisholm and uh, be uh, our patsy. So he was found dead in a Melbourne motel room in March after taking his uh, concerns to ASIO, we await the outcome of that investigation. So, yes, uh, 
these knowing that these sort of attempts go on, uh, security clearance for our MPs and senators, why not? Uh, fixing the political funding system, which is so wide open you could drive a truck through and lots of people have um, trucks full of money. Uh, let's fix that. Um, a federal anti-corruption commission. I mean, these are all just domestic reforms we can do without any reference to China or anybody else. But the, the hard part, Mark, as you say, is what about uh, when inevitably we take some measure in defense of ourselves that, quote, makes the Chinese angry, unquote, uh, and where they respond not just with the theatrics and the boombox to which we've conditioned ourselves to preemptively kowtow, but actual economic punishment. So uh, there's not so much you can do about that. Um, a lot of areas Beijing would not uh, want to interfere with at the moment. For example, our iron ore exports to China, they like that to keep their industrial economy fueled. Their, our food exports to China, they like to keep their tables well stocked. They've got a pork crisis at the moment, which is quite serious, uh, and they're stocking up on alternatives, uh, uh, beef, chicken, whatever they can get their hands on, and other products out of Australia. They quite like being able to offer their middle-class families the opportunity of uh, studying abroad in countries like Australia. The, the um, rich, the very richest Chinese who migrate overseas, Australia is their number one preference ahead of Canada and the US. So they like all these things going on. Uh, and they're not going to threaten that because it would harm their own interests. But there are, uh, there, there probably will come, almost certainly will come a day when they'll, they will try and turn the tap off on one or another tr line of Australian income. And the only two uh, sensible uh, measures that I've been able to find anywhere, one is the ancient principle of diversification. I'm not suggesting that anybody turn down a Chinese profit opportunity, but that we look for profit opportunities increasingly elsewhere once we know that uh, the, an, what an Australian minister or business person might think is a trade breakthrough is also for Beijing, a future uh, pressure point on Australia. And the second thing is an idea, and it's the only other practical idea that I've, ever, I've heard anybody come up with, which is the Peter Varghese uh, idea. Now that Varghese has gone from you know being the head of Foreign Affairs Department to uh, Chancellor of Queensland University, he's now put in train a process at Queensland University to set up, it's a kind of reserve fund. Uh, and the concept is that instead of spending uh, all of the China-based revenue that the university earns each year on recurrent spending, you put a, some portion of that into a, a fund, call it an infrastructure fund or a scholarship fund, uh, a long-term fund, which then gives you some sort of buffer against the day when uh, Beijing decides to turn off the tap on, say, university uh, students or some other source of income. And that's a concept that could be applied across other industries. I think for the uh, purposes of accountability, we should address that question of universities because that is a, a strong theme in, in, in this discussion, uh, in this public discussion that's been going on for some time now. Uh, you know, whether Australian universities are over-reliant on the flow of Chinese students and indeed does that leave them vulnerable? Does it leave them vulnerable in an academic sense in terms of the, the integrity of the institutions? Uh, we know there have been Confucian institutes uh, set up and uh, there's been some criticism of those. There's also just the straight-out money question you were just talking about there as an income source. Um, so that idea about diversification and about, you know, the equivalent of sort of sectional sovereign wealth funds, you know, a kind of a, a fund uh, to, to deal with uh, future, you know, interruption to your income, that they're the sorts of things you'd advocate? Yes, and... I, look, I'm no expert on the university sector. I'm sure there are people here. I mean, in fact, you're affiliated with the university yourself. Know a lot more than I do. Not that quickly. Um, but, but, um, but in broad, I mean, yes, and uh, vice chancellors and other senior university people have now uh, said openly that they think they are overexposed to a single market. And we have many people telling us that the university sector uh, has been naive um, about dealing with some of the United Front uh, work department activities. Uh, so United Front uh, associations uh, can take any number of guises. Some some uh, of the Chinese community associations, of course, are completely, you know, grassroots, indigenous, ordinary uh, Chinese Australians getting together. But some are, uh, you know, the puppets of um, the United Front work department. And some of those are student associations. Some of them are patriotic associations, homeland associations, business associations, all of that stuff. Most campuses, uh, according to people who do know the sector, uh, have at least one or two active on them. Uh, but this is all news to Australian university administrators. So it's time to uh, get a bit China savvy uh, and figure out the difference between the students, the people who are here to learn and want to enjoy the liberties uh, that we all enjoy, 
and those who are uh, covertly manipulating to extinguish the liberties uh, of others. Now, a presumption that I guess underpins a lot of this is that Xi Jinping is there for life. I mean, he certainly declared himself leader for life and, and uh, you know, the, it's not a system that seems all that sensitive to electoral whim. Um, however, as you make the point, and I'm just going to quote you here, he has, you're talking about a historic moment, I suppose, in which Australia could uh, use uh, the time for a bit of reflection and perhaps recasting of our, of our uh, position. You're talking of Xi Jinping, you say he has a pork supply crisis across China, a political crisis in Hong Kong, a foreign policy and trade crisis with America, and overshadowing everything an economic slowdown. I mean, that sounds pretty dire when you put it all together. Is How safe is Xi Jinping? I mean, are there forces in China that uh, would like to remove him? Uh, Richard McGregor, who... Uh also former Sydney Morning Herald, actually, if you go back far enough, Mark. <laughs> this guy is very good. Um, <laughs> you see the exalted company? I, I aspire to get there one day. Um, uh, Richard McGregor, who's now fellow, uh, he's the China expert at the Lowy Institute. Um, he's written a paper about this recently uh, where he call, I think he calls it the Xi Jinping backlash or something like that, where he makes, he, he makes all of those points and adds the further point that his Xi Jinping's early, forceful, uh, and very spirited anti-corruption campaign also made him a lot of enemies among uh, factions and, and powerful families in China who are itching to get some revenge if and when they can. All of these uh, crises unfolding on his watch create uh, vulnerabilities for him. Uh, Richard's point is that we can't uh, – there's not, not enough visibility into, into that system to know if and when – those pressures will come to the point of forcing uh, Xi Jinping out. Of course, it's not going to be, um, well, it's much less likely to be a street protest and much more likely to be elite Chinese politics and factionalism forcing him out before he can serve his full life term as president. <laughs> but simply, uh, Richard's point simply is to make the point that just because we can't see it doesn't mean that China doesn't have politics, that it does, that things have turned sharply against Xi Jinping the pork crisis and economic slowdown, the pork crisis is hard for us uh, to see or, or to appreciate. Well, we normally associate them with the National Party, don't we? I mean, <laughs> pork crisis. That's right. That's right. They don't seem to have so much of a crisis, though. They seem to have an unlimited supply as long as they're <laughs> in coalition government. But I'll just, I'll just, I'll just add one, um, one pork-related anecdote that I learned this year, which is that because of this pork shortage, I discovered that uh, the Chinese government has a uh, pork strategic reserve, uh, which they've started to open up to supply the market. Other countries have strategic uh, oil reserves. In China, pork is so central to the diet and the culture that they have a, a strategic pork reserve of frozen, hundreds of thousands of tons of frozen pork, which they've started to uh, put on the market to keep prices under control. This is just to give us some idea of the seriousness of that, of that crisis. And, of course, the economic problem... Uh, arcs over everything. Last year was the first time in 20 years that the private sector economy in China shrank and it's not looking so good this year either. Yeah, it's very interesting. Now we're going to go to questions, so prepare yourself for that. And while we're doing that, I'm going to sneak in a, a, a quick domestic one because in your capacity at the Sydney Morning Herald in the Age, you're also political editor as well as international editor. So I thought given that this is the last one of these Meet the Author events for the year and uh, we're at the end of uh, the uh, dramatic political year of 2019, I'd just throw you this question. Is Scott Morrison the miracle worker or just a very lucky boy? <laughs> well, uh, you probably only get one Bill Shorten in your... Uh... <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> well, it's a yin and yang, right? You, you, you know, he would have... Uh, he, 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 let's just put it this way. He would have looked a lot less, um, it would have been a lot less miraculous if he'd had a popular opposition leader to compete against. And I just remember I had this thought, this moment stuck in my head watching uh, a focus group that we'd commissioned in Melbourne, um, uncommitted voters sitting around the table and the convener takes the group through, you know, what, what comes to mind when, we, when you think about Scott Morrison and what blah, blah. Tell us what thoughts come to mind when you think about Bill Shorten. It's a moment of reflection while they all look at the ceiling. And then one of the blokes around the table says, I'd like to punch him in the head. <laughs> and, then, and then if that's not enough of a warning sign, the bloke next to him goes, yeah. Um, 
And nobody differed with that opinion around the table. That was a bit of a clue about, you know, the outcome. So I think Morrison, having campaigned on a minimalist uh, program, is now finding that a minimalist program in government um, isn't sufficing. Today, political debate up on the Hill was there were three issues. Uh, uh, People were talking about the foreign interference uh, task force that the government announced yesterday, the pressure on the government to support more action and possibly a royal commission into veterans' suicide, and the review that the government has announced just today into the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. These are all catch-up. These are all areas where the government is unprepared, flat-footed, pressure points, crises, problems emerge, and they're desperately trying to you know, put out spot fires. I probably, maybe shouldn't use that metaphor at, at this time of the year. Well, uh, e- even the, uh, the, um, the, the reversal they had last week on the Ensuring Integrity Bill, otherwise known as the Union Busting Bill, exactly. uh, that was a reheated piece of uh, legislation from the, the past term, that the previous term, which they didn't get through, and they haven't got it through again. Uh, I guess it'll be back. Um, so do we have a show of hands? Anyone interested in putting a question, preferably on China rather than on uh, Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese? We've got one down the front here. Thanks for that. Um, just a question for you in your role as one of the few people in the room is still currently Fairfax slash nine. And that's, do you think China's got its value for money out of the, um, China Daily insert, um, byline, all the news you need to know about China that appears regularly in our major, what would you call it? What would you think? Was this still a newspaper? Whatever. Yeah, um, fun, and enough, the yeah. fact that it was midwifed by our, our then foreign minister at the time just, it's just something very, very curious, and I was interested in your thoughts. I'm not sure if everybody uh, – but, but, yes, we are now called nine newspapers, apparently. It doesn't roll off the tongue yet. The company formerly known as Fairfax, now known as nine newspapers. Someone told me the other day in an email they were called Nine Facts, which I thought, yeah, <laughs> that worked. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll get used to it, I suppose. Um, every quarter, inside your copy of the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age, circulates – a thing called China Watch, which, as you say, straight out of the uh, uh, propaganda department of the Beijing government, um, all the news about China that you need to read. And Paul Keating would endorse that sentiment because Paul said that uh, stories that didn't reflect well on China were anti-China stories, uh, by which metric almost everything you read in the Australian media about Australia would be anti-Australia. I should just add there, though, that um, when the questions arose about Helen Liu uh, in the uh, – Gladys Liu, sorry. Helen Liu was a previous scandal. Um, <laughs> about Gladys Liu in, in Chisholm, uh, Scott Morrison responded by saying that people who were making those criticisms of, of her allegiance and so forth, forth were racists. So, it, I mean, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole in this debate. Well, I don't see Scott Morrison uh, springing to the defence of, say, Ernest Wong, who's a former New South Wales parliamentary MP who's uh, been before the Independent Corruption Against Commission... Uh, Corruption Against Commission... Commission Against Corruption, um, get all your C's in a row, uh, under suspicion of uh, dealing with um, corrupt Chinese... Uh, Huang, Huang Jungmo and other corrupt sources of Chinese money... He hasn't sprung to his defence uh, and, and said criticism of him as a racist. It's only if you're criticising a Liberal MP, apparently you're racist. That was, a, I thought, a pretty serious overreach and very unfortunate that Scott Morrison should reach into the uh, Beijing propaganda toolkit uh, to, to just to protect his own MP. Uh, there was nothing racist about asking reasonable questions about the funding and background of a new Member of Parliament, um, nor did he spring to the defence of other Chinese Australians who'd been subject to suspicion. So... That was a shame, but likewise I think it's a shame that Paul Keating thinks that the authoritarian great power needs former Australian Prime Ministers to spring to its defence and take up the cudgels of Beijing against uh, an Australian media, uh, the Australian media broadly, but specifically he was critical of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age for reporting what he termed anti-China stories and the two that he singled out on the day when he was giving that speech. One was a story, it was a global story, the New York Times got... You probably noticed 400 pages of internal Chinese government documents about the systematic repression of the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang province in China. So if that Paul calling that anti-China implication, maybe we shouldn't run it. Uh, and the other one was about a, a correspondent finding a, a, a politician, naming a polit- quoting a politician in the Solomon Islands, saying that Chinese agents were offering him and others $200,000 Australian equivalent to change uh, the Solomon Islands diplomatic recognition away from Taiwan to Beijing. Again, Paul, that's anti-China, according to Paul, implication. We shouldn't run that either. 
But this is the same Sydney Morning Herald and Age that, as you're, I'm sorry, it took me a while getting back to it, but uh, publishes this propaganda sheet straight out of Beijing. Your question: Have we, uh, have they got good uh, economic value? According to Paul, they haven't got good value because we're still running anti-China stories. Look, it hasn't in any way uh, compromised our journalism. I'm pleased to say I thought it was a bad idea, and I've said so publicly and in print that I think it's a bad idea that we. Uh, run, we take their money and run this stuff. The old Lenin line, the capitalists will sell us the rope with which we hang them. Um, you know, <laughs> we'll take your money. Here's your, you put your propaganda directly before our audiences without any filter. Uh, but we do, of course, still take a robust uh, reporting attitude. We did break those stories last week. Uh, and nothing is, uh, we're not taking any, uh, any notice of Paul Keating's uh, suggestions about how we should censor ourselves according to the Chinese Communist Party's definitions. Just to be uh, complete on Keating, though, he, he says that uh, much of the debate lacks what he called strategic realism. Uh, and I think he's talking there about the response to China's expansion in the South China Sea, for example. His, his line is essentially that all great powers seek to protect their their flanks. Uh, the US has Hawaii and Guam, and and um, it's just what big powers do. Is there is there something in that argument, in your view? Well, of course there is. Uh in fact, in that same speech, he returned to a theme which he's often uh, sounded over the years, which is that China needs to be given uh, room or given space, strategic space uh, in the region to exercise its newfound power. Uh, I'd just say two quick things about that. Uh, one is that does it need to be given the space? Uh, I thought in the South China Sea it's done a pretty good job of taking the space from its neighbours, ask the Vietnamese, ask the Filipinos, Ask the Indonesians, ask anybody in South uh, South uh, East Asia uh, or the South Pacific, but I think they they don't really need the uh, anybody volunteering extra territorial space. They're doing a pretty good job of taking it uh, according to their own uh, whims and despite the findings of the uh, International Court of Arbitration at The Hague. Uh, secondly, uh, again, it's touching that Paul wants to make Apologies for uh, for China. It's true, of course, that great powers have all uh, done this from time to time. Not not all great powers, and I don't hear anybody uh, making the same um, case for India. Great rising power, you know, solid economic growth. Look to the future. One point one billion people. When China's demographic uh, curve starts to arc downwards, uh, India's is still growing. It's going to be a dominant power later of this century. Or I don't hear anybody saying, "Oh, we've got to step back." and make sure we give India space uh, because India is going to... This is, I think, special pleading. Um, I, I, I think strategic realism is necessary, uh, but not strat not strategic apologias on behalf of an authoritarian power that doesn't need uh, the help of former Australian prime ministers. Do we have another question? You have one uh, just there. Thank you. I'm interested in uh, a neg the negative reactions to what you're saying. In two forms. First of all, you know, this is fake news and how do you respond, how would you respond to that uh, if they were making allegations of fake news? And the second one is more of a personal one in terms of harassment. Have you experienced it? What's your position on that personal harassment? On your first point, would you please just uh, let me tell me, just before you hand over the microphone, what, which, which, are the, which is the fake news accusation? I haven't heard one yet, but, you know, people will say, oh, who are his sources, where is he getting information, this is this is not uh, bona fide, you know, just sort of uh, undermining the credibility of what you're saying by declaring it as fake news. Oh, I see. Well, I'm happy I'm happy for, uh, I mean, the, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson at the regular <laughs> Beijing uh, press conference said today that... Um, uh, Australia was getting um, hysterical or lies about uh, Chinese intelligence activities in Australia and Australia should, quote, respect the facts, unquote. Well, for a regime that ha has pulled off what everybody thought was impossible, which was to censor the internet or at least, at least censor what, the, what its own citizens can uh, get on the internet, that uh, maintains a remarkably successful web-scrubbing censorship and propaganda operation, um, I'm happy to submit my record uh, and um, insofar as um, possible, identify all my sources. I'm, I'm quite happy to be tested, as I am tested every day. I mean, I've been in this business for more than 35 years. It's a daily competitive business. And, you know, I'm happy to let my credentials, my sources speak for themselves, my record speak for itself. 
I'm not afraid of being accused of fake news. On your second point, um, we have started to self-censor in Australia. People have become afraid and timorous about, uh, quote, upsetting the Chinese, unquote. Uh, once we start to self-censor, we, we are defeating ourselves. We are losing. We are surrendering liberties preemptively, and I don't think we should. People have told me I'm being very brave, being critical. Uh, well, you know, it's time for us all to be brave. If we're not, Do you expect we to lose. be allowed back there? Yeah. I've had a fun relationship with the uh, Chinese government over some years in terms of visa access where we've had this funny relationship where – uh, they, I actually get invited to come to conferences and chair sessions of things and this sort of stuff, um, but not in a journalistic capacity. And uh, when I occasionally I've taken this up, I've, I've been going to China since the mid '80s, um, and it's not an unfamiliar place. But uh, in the last decade, when I say, "Okay, I'll take this up," and I go to the consulate to apply for my visa, we end up having a negotiation where they end up saying, "Look, we'll let you go. You've been invited, but you have to sign a letter saying you won't write anything about China while you're in China." To which I say, "Well, that's fine. I'll just write when I get back. You know, so I'm only there for a week. It's no problem." So that's the that's the funny symbiosis. Uh, I'm not planning, but but things have got tougher, harsher. Uh, the treatment of John Gano is one indicator. The treatment of uh, Yang Hengjun the Australian citizen and writer who we saw this week is now being interrogated, shackled on a daily basis to force a, a confession from him. I, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not planning uh, any trips anytime soon. Uh, one last question, Jack Waterford. Peter, you say that Australians won't lightly trade off their liberties in some sort of preemptive kowtow to China. But the truth is that over the past 20 years, Australians have not lightly but very heavily traded off their liberties in a supposed crusade against Islamic terror. And it is just those sorts of liberties which are now being used by the security state to uh, marshal their forces against the supposedly resurgent China. Do you think that we need new powers to protect ourselves against the fact that there's undoubted Chinese espionage going on here? or against some future invasion or something? Or is not the best or the most robust defence of our liberty actually being free and uh, not, I'm not talking about self-censorship so much, but putting ourselves behind a whole wall of secret trials, secret prisons, uh, charging people with saying anything that embarrasses uh, our security establishment and so forth? Uh, well, apart from differing with you on one term, which is the use of the term security state, I use security agencies, or in, let's be more specific, the Prime Minister, and we can name some of the ministers, uh, I, I completely agree that um, the, the pendulum has swung too far, uh, that every time there's been a security, uh, a terrorist attack or a security scare, uh, governments have implemented uh, an increasing succession or a, a, a sort of crescendo, if you, if you like, of um, security laws which, uh, to which there's been no countervailing movement. We've now come up against one of those. Uh, the, the, the journalists, the raids on the uh, journalists um, this year has now provoked a campaign to push back the other way, a campaign I completely support and I think is, is necessary and timely. Uh, and all the media companies in this country, as well as... Uh, a lot of uh, NGOs and the public public generally supports, and uh, I hope I hope and trust that we'll have some success uh, with that. So I completely agree with you, Jack. We need to protect our liberties from our own institutions and our own governments and our own political enthusiasms, but that doesn't uh, excuse the surrender of liberties to foreign powers either. I'm in favour of defending liberties against all comers, foreign and domestic, and. Um, I don't know. I don't prescribe uh, new laws or institutions to defend Australia against uh, foreign invaders. I only uh, suggest that we enforce the laws that we already have, that the hollowing out of state capability that we see in Australia, whether it's new apartment buildings cracking apart, banks uh, offending uh, egregiously for years and getting away with it, abusing their customers and their public trust, uh, underpayment of workers by some of the biggest and most famous businesses in the country for years systematically, uh, all of those uh, state failures, they were all illegal. There were regulations in place against all of them. 
All of them were being flouted. The capacity to enforce those laws didn't exist. There was no political will, no funding. The agencies responsible lacked money, people, and political will to enforce existing regulations. All of them were acted on finally because of media exposés was the only thing that got governments uh, mobilised to address these systematic problems that had emerged. I'm pleased to see that yesterday's announcement from Scott Morrison to start putting a task force and some money together to enforce, to give teeth to the foreign uh, interference laws that were uh, put first put before the parliament a year and a half ago, passed by the parliament uh, a year and a half ago, uh, suggest that we are going to put some teeth into that, enforce the laws, and not let the foreign interference and intrusion laws fall victim to the same state hollowing out and state failure that so many other areas of our, of our regulatory and public life have been. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all very much for coming out here tonight. I apologise to those who had a question and we didn't get to that. We've just run out of time. I'm listening to Peter Harcher has been uh, an extraordinarily interesting thing. I'm sure you agree. Could you please join me in thanking him? You've been listening to a very thought-provoking recording of Democracy Sausage with the journalist, author and essayist Peter Harcher. Next week, we'll be back for a final fry-up of the year. And don't forget, if you have any feedback or questions, contact us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or via the Facebook page at Policy Forum Pod. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.